Welcome to the Demystifying Diversity podcast, where each week we explore topics related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'm Dara Lise Lyons. In this episode, we're looking at the benefits that Latin American immigration and civic participation have had on the United States economy, society, and culture. Que busquen a su alrededor, que, que no teman a ser amigos, que no teman a ser amigas, porque el, el estar solo a veces trae muchas consecuencias como, como la depresión o ciertas cosas negativas que uno puede decir que, que puede pasar, que son como, como que directos, no al al matadero, pero que busquen a su comunidad, que busquen a sus compatriotas, que para que encuentren amigos y que en esas, en ese caminar de amigos pueden encontrar a su familia también, a una familia que eligen. Entonces, yo puedo decir que estando aquí he encontrado a hermanas, he encontrado a a comadres, he encontrado a mejores amigas, a, a almas gemelas. Entonces, si alguien está igual en una situación, pues que no tema. Ese es mi sentir, tal vez. Bueno, sí que tema. Bueno, no. <ríe> no sé, pero el mundo es pequeño. <ríe> sí, el mundo es pequeño. So she says, you know, to look around you um, and to find, you know, your people and your community that, you know, through doing that, she's found fam friends, she's found close friends, she's found sisters, she's found family and that that's a chosen family. Um, and that, you know, being alone can be really hard and can have, you know, these negative kind of feelings associated with it. But, you know, look around you um, and, and, and find, you know, your loved ones. In 2018, in the 35-day span between May 5th and June 9th, 2,342 children were taken away from 2,206 adults. The parents or guardians, and at least some of the children accompanying them, knew that attempting to cross the border would put them at risk of detention or deportation, but they had no idea they might be separated from each other. Nursing infants were seized, screaming from their mother's arms. Teens not yet old enough to drive were shuttled away without explanation. Young children, not old enough to tell time, were hauled off in vans and taken to enormous detention centers, kept in large metal containers alongside strangers, and made to wait, and wait, and wait. These children spent 24 hours a day, seven days a week, beneath harsh overhead lights in converted warehouses and repurposed Walmarts. Sometimes they were sent to tent cities. Wherever they were, they prayed for the time to come when they would be reunited with the people who loved them enough to attempt to bring them somewhere where they might have a chance at upward social mobility. Kids entertained themselves with silver-colored solar blankets because they lacked access to toys, and adolescents changed the diapers of incarcerated toddlers. 
At the time, across the American nation, there was a lot of spirited debate about semantics. Should the large locked metal containers where many of the children were being held be referred to as cages? Or was there a more fitting, less disturbing description? One detention facility became widely known among the Spanish-speaking community as La Pereira, which means the dog kennel. In English, it had been christened Ursula, the same name as the villain in the well-known Disney classic, The Little Mermaid. Not that the incarcerated children were watching Disney movies or seeing the news stories about themselves and their separated families. Here are some of the statements made by United States government officials at the time and publicized on social media and in the news. In a morning tweet, President Donald Trump said, Children are being used by some of the worst criminals on earth as a means to enter our country. Has anyone been looking at the crime taking place south of the border? It is historic, with some countries the most dangerous places in the world. Not going to happen in the U.S. Attorney General Jeff Sessions said, If you cross this border unlawfully, then we will prosecute you. It's that simple. If you are smuggling a child, then we will prosecute you, and that child will be separated from you as required by law. And Department of Homeland Security Secretary Kirsten Nielsen made the statement, We do not have the luxury of pretending that all individuals coming to this country as a family unit are in fact a family. Neither Nielsen nor Sessions are still part of the Trump administration but the sentiments they espoused represent the unwavering attitude of many current political leaders and many members of the American populace who insist on conflating immigration with criminality and dismiss the reality that it is often familial love that compels people to attempt to cross the border in the first place. Here is Dulce Ramirez explaining why, when she was 12 years old, her mother brought her, her older sister, and her younger brother from Mexico to the United States. My father was living here in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, since 2005. We were struggling with uh, basic needs, like education and food. So he made the decision to, to emigrate in hoping that he will, um, um, that, that will help us uh, have a better circumstances. And two years later, he and my um, mother decided that maybe it was better for us to come and reunite with him as well. They just thought it will probably we could have better opportunities like in the education um, system I, um, and also probably by learning a new language. I remember that when I was in, um, in school, a couple of kids were working already at a very young age. Well, some kids will have to just drop off of school because their parents wouldn't have enough money to to pay for tuition or for um, school supplies, which is it's very difficult for low-income people to to be able to survive. Dulce's mother and her three children attempted to cross the border in 2007 during the George W. Bush administration prior to the introduction of the now-suspended zero-tolerance policy. We made seven attempts in total. And three, oh of them, and three of them, we were arrested. And um, three of, of them, we just decided to voluntarily return and wait until probably it was safer to, to cross. 
Dulce, what would happen when you were arrested? Like, what what happened? Well, um, well, when we were arrested, we um, we were uh, took in a in a town van. We were we were all took to a uh, detention center, and there they had people in what it looked like cages outside. If they don't have enough room inside. Yeah. Sometimes even then overnight. And, um, and also, um, so when, when we were took to those um, detention centers, we were just um, put in a room or a cage with other people. Um, they will take my mom to, um, to another room. They... Um, at, at the first time, we thought probably she was going to be taken away. Um, maybe we were not going to see her again. Um, luckily, she was just took to, um, so that the officers would take her information. And within an hour or two, she would be taken back with us. Unlike Dulce, the children separated from their parents in 2018 didn't see their parents for days, weeks, months, or even longer. Deportation, which can be a traumatic experience even when parents and children remain together, has left some families separated indefinitely. Sulafa Grijalva left Ecuador with her family in 2007 when she was 10 and immigrated to Canada only to be deported back to Ecuador two years later. What it looks like to be deported, it looks like a series of hearings, a lot of appointments at legal aid, um, which is a nonprofit public interest firm that uh, provides legal assistance to parents like my parents. Um, It looks like a lot of interpretation, a lot of social workers around you. And eventually it's just a call from the attorney saying there's 30 days within which you need to pack up and leave. And I had just started my freshman year of high school. So before I could even turn in my first essay, (laughs) I, you know, I had to, I was uprooted. So I, I left the country. It is at least in part due to what she went through as an adolescent that Sulafa has become involved in community organizing initiatives and is currently pursuing a law degree. I don't know if I would have the same um, level of passion and empathy about activism and the immigrant community and housing justice as I do, had I not experienced deportation, um, at one point in Canada, my mom and I um, experienced living in a shelter. So I, I, I kind of, I know how valuable housing security is because at one point I didn't have it. Sulafa has empathy for the challenges facing migrant and immigrant families who leave their countries in order to seek educational and economic opportunities or to flee persecution, poverty, or danger. In 2018, as the 2,342 incarcerated children and 2,206 adults who had been separated from one another at the border waited to be reunited, there were a staggering number of people who openly voiced the opinion that these families were getting what they deserved. Here's Obed Arango, 
a journalist, anthropologist, visual artist, filmmaker, university professor, and the founder and executive director of the Centro de Cultura, Arte, Trabajo y Educación, CICATE, speaking about one of the reasons for that. Language is very important, yeah? As an anthropologist, I can tell you that the language defines the world, no? Therefore, when when the rhetoric, when the political rhetoric uh, choose certain words, uh, it really is a big trick. For example, the sentence, illegal alien. Illegal alien is like the official term that even the government uses to refer to us, no? To refer to what we call undocumented immigrants. The original, the language that they use is illegal alien. Part of the problem with that sentence that is even official is that from the very beginning, it's criminalizing the one that is coming from another country. In, in order to call you alien, is dehumanizing. And that is why for most, I would not say all, but for most average American, to see the children in cages in the border doesn't bother them because for them are illegal. Therefore, automatically in their mind, if they deserve it, which is sick because it's dehumanizing. That is a big problem. The problem of the use of the language, how the government has used it, how the politicians are using it, especially this last administration, Give me your tired, your huddled masses yearning to break free, the Statue of Liberty invites. Yet when people attempt to come to a nation founded on immigration, seeking opportunities for upward social mobility, the United States government locks them in cages or builds walls to keep them out. Trump's infamous anti-Mexican immigration statement, which he made during his presidential campaign, has been repeated ad nauseum. But I think it's important to mention because it speaks to the rationale people use to support the anti-immigration rhetoric. When Mexico sends its people, they're not sending their best, then-candidate Donald Trump said. They're not sending you. They're not sending you. They're sending people that have lots of problems, and they're bringing those problems with us. They're bringing drugs. They're bringing crime. They're rapists. And, he added, as if it were an afterthought, some, I assume, are good people. Here's John McDonald, a professor of criminology and sociology at the University of Pennsylvania. It was really hyperbole that during the Trump administration, uh, and I was actually quite surprised how little pushback there was in kind of popular media. I mean, there was media say like, oh, but, th- but we, we, there's evidence suggesting this isn't true. Um, and then, you know, uh, the Trump campaign would just pull out a couple of anecdotes and just kind of double down on it. And it really, um, it really seemed, uh, I wouldn't say it convinced people that there was something there, but it, it, it was still, it was enough to override kind of what I'd considered overwhelming evidence from sociology, criminology, economics, suggesting that on average, there's, there's either like I said, either no effect on crime or crime goes down. Research and statistics demonstrate that immigration either has a negligible 
or a positive effect on crime. And in fact, the more immigrants arrive in an area, the more likely it is for crime rates to decrease. Nevertheless, a major component of Trump's political platform was his insistence on the need to insulate the American public from the dangers of immigration. Before being elected to office, the now president of the United States assured the American public that he would build the wall and make Mexico pay for it. After his 2017 inauguration, one of his first actions was to sign Executive Order 13767, an order that formally directed the U.S. government to begin wall construction along the Mexican border. Nearly two years later, starting on December 22, 2018, and lasting until January 25, 2019, the federal government was partly shut down for 35 days because the government could not come to a consensus over how much money to spend constructing a barrier. Trump opposed any spending bill that did not include $5.7 billion in border wall funding. Studies geared toward assessing the effect of Latin American immigration on United States society, economy, and culture have consistently shown that through employment, education, and entrepreneurship, immigration stimulates the American economy. In fact, statistics show that Latin American immigrants contribute to the United States labor pool at higher rates than expected. They make up approximately 14% of the population, yet account for 17% of the United States workforce. Furthermore, according to research by the New American Economy and other sources, undocumented immigrants contribute upward of $13 billion a year into the social security system and $3 billion to Medicare. Undocumented immigrant workers are literally subsidizing the economic and medical welfare of the American elderly. Without the more than $16 billion immigrants are paying into these systems, systems they can't benefit from themselves, those receiving Social Security and or Medicare would be left without critical resources. Even with this income from undocumented workers, projected figures forecast that Medicare's hospital insurance trust fund will run out of money by the year 2026, and Social Security benefits will need to be drastically reduced by the year 2035, leaving many to conclude that we need more, not less people, to immigrate to the United States. There are so many other positive benefits that come with immigration. Tulia Folletti came to the United States from Argentina in 1996 to pursue a PhD and is now the director of Latin American and Latinx Studies program at the University of Pennsylvania, as well as a senior fellow with the Leonard Davis Institute of Health Economics and class of 1965 endowed term professor of political science. As an immigrant, um, I can say, you know, we bring so much new. Uh, new points of perspective, new ethics of work, new, you know, standards of, of work, new cultures, and, and so on and so on and so on. So, so it's, uh, it's saddening when, when people, you know, rally against um, immigration. Plus, there's the aforementioned benefits regarding crime. The research on it's pretty conclusive, um, and it's not. Um, and I'll will say it's not conclusive because of like ideology that people have about either being pro 
uh, or against or you know wanting a more restrictive immigration policy. Just people who look at have looked at data, they consistently find that immigration is either associated with no difference in crimes or it reduces crime. Paradoxically, many of the staunchest opponents to immigration benefit the most from immigrant labor. Strange thing about U.S. policy on agriculture is we subsidize agribusiness for things like, you know, Purdue Chicken, for example. It gets, you know, they get huge subsidies. Um, but then those companies rely on immigrant labor. And sometimes it's not legal. You know, it's people coming without paperwork. Um, but they're basically becoming, they're the, dri- you know, they're the driver of this labor pool, but yet they're being subsidized by the government. And then the government's coming back and saying, oh, by the way, you know, um, we need to be more restrictive on immigration. So it's like you're creating a demand. You know, it's like there's this confluence of policies. See also in, um, see it also with uh, these programs like Secure Communities and so forth, where they'll say, you know, those places are most likely to sign up for those programs where the law enforcement agency would collaborate with customs and immigration will be places that have a growing immigrant population because of agribusiness that's being subsidized by federal policy. So it's like, you know, we have have federal policies that are basically competing against each other. Undocumented immigrant laborers contribute a great deal to the American economy. And at the same time, they are often exploited because of the way that the rhetoric of illegal and alien has divested many members of American society of adequate protection under the law. Adesia Jones, a vegan activist whose ancestors are from Guatemala and Africa, became an advocate for food justice, at least in part because of how the American industrial complex dehumanizes its immigrant labor pool. Oppressions were linked when it comes to the environment, when it comes to animals, when it comes to humans and how all of these things really operate as a power play on top of one another. So I think about the liberation of bodies and food and I think of so many different things at one time from all different perspectives and that's just from understanding how our agricultural system was set up and how it uses bodies to operate the ways in which it disposes people who are no longer useful and how quickly people become uh, disposable because it's such a such a terribly difficult lifestyle to be picking tomatoes all day or be working in farms that distribute avocados year round to the America, some from some village in Mexico, wherever you go, if you start to pick away, you'll see that people's bodies are definitely on the line, Uh, that these resources and food are definitely corresponded to human beings. And understanding that at a baseline, when you start to work your way up into the food industry in terms of um, non-human animals being abused, and you start to see how factory farms operate and the workers that work in factory farms and how disposable the workers are, just like um, the, the animals, just like the animals are slaughtered. The people frequently are undocumented, frequently have terrible injuries that never go um, checked upon. They are just disposed upon if they get hurt. And there's nothing ever documented about them, just, just as they are undocumented. 
While Adesia was referring specifically to the ways in which the prioritization of profits over people is injurious to humans, animals, and the environment, oppressions are also linked when it comes to the ways the immigrant community is treated. The same system that brutalizes the bodies of undocumented workers, puts children into cages, and erects physical walls to keep people out, and unbreachable linguistic barriers by branding individuals quote-unquote alien and illegal. There is this current political science called Paul Pearson, who, you know, always used to say, you can look at the photo, or you can look at the movie, you know. And for those of us who take history into account. We, li- we like to look at, at the movie. We like to look at what is the dynamics that explains how you got where you are. The photo is not enough. You know, you can study a photo in, in exquisite detail, but the photo will also tell you the now. It's important, you know, to understand how you got there in order to understand what the consequences are of that, what you are seeing in that photo, or how you can change that photo. Um, and, and yes, I mean, in the case of the U.S., there are these, you know, structural systemic inequalities that unfortunately, you know, what I've been seeing in the U.S. is what, you know, we could call the, in Spanish we would say, la tercermundización de los Estados Unidos is becoming more and more a sister world country, more and more inequality high, 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 very, very um, high levels of income inequality and inequality of opportunities is what is shaping society. Here's a short message from our episode sponsors, without whose support the Demystifying Diversity podcast wouldn't be possible. I want to tell you about an emotional intelligence program called Next Level Trainings. In 2019, I personally went through Next Level Trainings, and in all sincerity, the Demystifying Diversity podcast would not exist if I hadn't. The leadership trainings opened my eyes to some blind spots I had in my life. They increased my capacity to give and receive love, to forgive myself and others, and to contribute more to this world. They really helped me, both personally and professionally. Next Level Trainings uses experiential exercises that are designed to help you to see yourself as you are, shift your perspective, and start forming sustainable habits that will transform your life and, by extension, your community and the world. In a supportive environment, you'll come to see yourself and others through a more open, powerful, and freeing lens. I can say from my own firsthand experience that the trainings increased my capacity for love, connection, and vulnerability. They were life-changing, and I can't recommend Next Level Trainings enough. And Next Level Trainings is offering Demystifying Diversity podcast listeners $50 off on Shift, their introductory virtual training. To add even more value to their offer, if you register for and attend the Shift online training now, you'll receive a free voucher to their in-person discovery training valued at $495. The voucher can be used when pandemic gathering restrictions lift. So go to nextleveltrainings.com slash diversity, that's nextleveltrainings with an S slash diversity, and enter the promo code diversity. You'll be glad you did.
Speaking of savings, for most of us, when it comes to money, we have no clear direction. We know what we want financially, but we get confused as to how to get there. John and Patty Lavin, the owners of Lavin and Associates, a branch of Primerica, are committed to offering all people the opportunity to achieve financial freedom. Lavin and Associates offers a complementary cutting-edge financial needs analysis that works sort of like a GPS, or I guess you can think of it as a money map. By giving you a clear route from where you are to where you want to go, this analysis empowers you to become properly protected, debt-free, and financially independent, so you can worry less about money and enjoy your life more. I had a financial planning session with John a couple of years ago, and I went from $0 in the bank to more than $10,000, plus a retirement account. To set up a time to speak with John, a financial advisor for 40 years, and receive your free financial needs analysis, call him at 610-453-2331 or email him at johnlavin at me.com. That's J-O-N-L-A-V-I-N at me.com. And let him know the Demystifying Diversity podcast sent you. Anna Marie Jones, co-collaborator for the Demystifying Diversity podcast, voiced an important reflection about the walls and barriers that we erect against others and what motivates us to build not only physical but emotional walls. I see fear as being a wall. Fear is an intangible wall. Anna Marie sat down with Veronica Fitzgerald, who immigrated to the United States from Ecuador as a teenager with her parents and brother. We have to truly look at what's happening in front of us and the world we're living in and ask ourselves questions over and over again about, is this fair? And is this right? Does it sit well with me? And is this the world that I want to continue living in? And if it's not, and if you're asking those questions, and if you're in constant inquiry, whether it's by yourself, because it doesn't need to be had with everybody around you. Everybody's going to have their own. But do doing your own work then that's that's the answer. If you can if you can find the answers in like, no, this is unfair, this is not right, then that comes back to you, how you then handle yourself with the people at the supermarket, with the driver that's taking you home. Like everybody, and that could be you tomorrow. All of what you have today and all of what you've yeah. had and have been given and gifted might all be gone tomorrow and you can be in that place. People come to the United States for a variety of reasons, educational, economic, even emotional. You're about to hear Yvonne, whose voice you heard at the beginning of the episode. Because of her undocumented status, Yvonne has opted to keep her last name anonymous. Her words are translated by Leah Margarita Gazo Reisman, a bilingual nonprofit professional and sociologist. Siempre quise ver a mi papá. Mi papá se vino muchos años, eh, se vino primero que, que yo y que mis hermanos. Entonces, él se vino y ahora Carlos, el que es mi esposo, me propuso que nos viniéramos para formar una, una pareja al principio y después una familia. Entonces, yo llegué con 25 años aquí 
y pues esa fue la razón, ¿no? Tanto las familiares en lo personal y también en mi corazoncito, ¿no? Empezar una familia. So she always wanted to see her father who had migrated, um, you know, far before the time that she came here. Um, and then her now husband was also living in the United States and, and said, you know, was said to her, come, you know, come here and we'll be together, you know, and she wanted to, you know, have a partner, have him as her partner and, and to later start a, fam a family. So, um, you know, it was both the family reasons and also the heart, you know, wanting that, um, that connection. Yvonne arrived in the United States in 2005 when she was 26. Her early adjustment period was difficult, but now, more than 15 years later, she has become part of a supportive community. She and her family are doing well, even in the midst of a global pandemic. Unfortunately, that is not the case for many other immigrants. You're about to hear Juan Rosa, Northeast Director of Civic Engagement, and Juliana Cabrales, Mid-Atlantic Director for Naleo Educational Fund, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization that facilitates full Latinx participation in the American political process. There are policies in place and systems in place that sort of directly led to a one, one group of people or two group of people being more affected than others by the pandemic. The Latino community has been hard hit by the pandemic, right? Disproportionately affected. A lot of the, the issues that we've seen, the way that uh, COVID really affected, disproportionately affected Latinos and African Americans more than other places, uh, other um, people, that um, certain places that are mostly populated by African Americans and Latinos um, were the ones that got the burnt, that bore the the, the the brunt of, of, of the crisis, right? Those are systemic things. The systemic issues that have been impacting minority communities since the inception of our nation have only been illuminated by the COVID-19 crisis. According to an APM research lab report, after they adjusted for age, the COVID-19 death rates for Black Americans are 2.3 to 3.7 times as high as for white Americans. And Latinx individuals are not far behind. Their age-adjusted mortality rates are about two to three times that of whites. These disproportionate death rates are staggering. So is the economic impact that COVID-19 has had on minority-owned businesses. According to a National Bureau of Economic Research Analysis, between February and April 2020, an estimated 41% of Black-owned businesses and 32% of Latinx-owned businesses closed, while only 17% of White-owned businesses closed. For undocumented immigrants, the situation becomes even more complicated and potentially more dire, especially when fear of possible deportation and or lack of medical insurance can preclude them from seeking or receiving treatment, and because immigrants are ineligible for government assistance. We simply do not exist for the system. A very clear example of that it has been now during the COVID-19. You may remember that there was a stimulus package given to everyone, $1,200 per adult or per kid. But the immigrant undocumented families, and in general, the immigrant families, were not subject to receive that stimulus package, even in the, in the midst of the pandemic. 
Why? Because we don't exist for the system. Here's what Sakate did in response to not existing for the system. Well, in response to that, as a community, we say, okay, we know that we don't exist for the system, but we will be in charge ourselves that nobody has hungry. Therefore, we organized ourselves, the 250 families of Sekate, and since uh, March uh, 26, every week, we have grocery bags for the families that need food. And everything has been organized from the same community. For example, there was a family that for seven weeks received a grocery bag with vegetables, with grains like beans, uh, rice. Uh, and, and then after seven weeks, they say, you know, I have a job now. And that family brought a coastal with 50 pounds of beans and 50 pounds of rice. He say, and she say, now this is our turn to share with the community. Therefore, despite that the system didn't recognize our existence as a, as a, as a, as a community, we recognize our existence. We recognize our needs but also we recognize our talents and our hearts. And then in that organization, because we are not seeing ourselves as clients, but as a community, we have been together providing food for everybody, to each other. That is only an example, no, of the things that we do. But that's what I call community that is organized. Not individualistic, it's organized. Through her community organizing initiatives in New York, Sulatha has been involved in campaigns for housing justice. She told me about one initiative in which, as part of the Ridgewood Tenants Association, a community was able to successfully stop developers from coming in and pushing people out of neighborhoods. That's what community organizing is. It's kind of harnessing the power of regular people in a neighborhood to make us um, as a collective to the government so that we can, you know, resist certain, certain um, requests that other people have made that could, you know, potentially injure the community or make, make us think that, you know, um, are injuring our communities. When it comes to discovering opportunities for innovation through social collaboration, immigrant communities are often an exceptional example of human resilience, resourcefulness, and collaboration. What we discover is that when you are alone as an immigrant and you don't have a community around you, is that isolation it should feel really, really sad and powerless. But when you have a community around you, therefore we feel empowered. We feel that we can actually do the things, no? uh, overcome the obstacles, and create the, the, the avenues, no? create the path. And, and I think that is the, the, the most beautiful thing. As a matter of fact, when you go to the website of Secate, the first thing that you see is Viva la Comunidad. Long life to the community. That's the very first thing. That's the, the principal message of Secate is that Viva la Comunidad. Long life to the community. We could be the healing when you're feeling all alone. We could be the reason to find the strength to carry on. In a world that's so divided, we shall overcome. We can be the healing. We can be the flower in the gun. We can be the healing. We could be the flower in the gun.
It is through community, Obed says, that people find liberation from oppression. Community. I cannot liberate myself. I need my community to liberate me. And that is when it comes to the sense of humility and community. The Center for Culture, Arts and, uh, Art Training and Education, or Centro de Cultura, Arte, Trabajo y Educación, CECAPE, as we know it, is a center in which I have the honor to be the founder. And uh, eight years ago, we started. But it has been really the community that has made the center. For me, it was only a matter of luck to start it. However, it has been the Latinx immigrant community that has made possible the center. And always we emphasize that the protagonist is the community. It's not one person or the other person. Or it's not the person who has more titles. No. In Secafe, is the community. And the sense of community means I have something to, to teach, I have something to learn, I have something to be liberated, and I can liberate somebody else of, of something else. Therefore, in discovering all the sense of community, I do believe that when I am not capable to liberate myself from certain uh, 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 oppression that I can exercise to orders, the other can tell me, this is of it where you have to grow. This is what you have to learn. I can guide you in that. And it's a matter to be humble, to recognize, to understand. And that is the only process in which we can liberate. is in community. But without community, I don't think that nobody can really liberate uh, uh, him, her, or themselves. But what do people do when there is no community, despite their yearning for one? Here's Dulce again. I remember the day that um, my dad enrolled us in school. Um, we talked with the, um, some of the staff in the school, and they told us that um, uh, most of the students there spoke Spanish in the North Philadelphia and in the Kensington neighborhood. Um, it's mainly, uh, there's mainly uh, Puerto Ricans and um, Dominicans. Mm. So most of the students would speak uh, English and Spanish. So at first I made me feel a little bit uh, more confident that probably I was going to make some friends. Um, Who was your first friend? Like, do you remember kind of like the first person that were, like, kind of made you feel welcome or safe or anything? Well, when I, when we, when I started school, um, yes, a, a couple of my classmates, or uh, try to talk to me and be friends. But I don't know if the cultural differences made it all made a difference. Um, uh, later on in the school year, they, um, they will have, they will make like racist comments about uh, Mexicans and um And also the way I looked, which mm. even though which was um, slightly different than them, the way I spoke, the um, even though they also speak Spanish, their their vocabulary is different. Dulce was socially ostracized throughout middle and high school. It was challenging. 
Well, I, I never felt kind of comfortable in the school environment, um, even yeah. after I moved to um, high school. Um, I tried to concentrate probably in learning and my school grade. Yeah. But as I was getting closer to graduating high school, I, and I was searching for opportunities to go to college and finding out that because I didn't have a status and or any documents, uh, I wasn't going to be able to enroll in college. Um, so that kind of made me want to give up. Yeah. Sometimes I thought, whoa, I can just probably um, drop out of school and start working. But uh, it helped my family. But um, mm, at the same time, I thought that even though if I could only get my high school diploma, at least I could have that. I, at least that would be one thing to be proud about. So did you stick it out and, and graduate and everything? Yes. Yes, and um, yes, and I graduated as a valedictorian. If her life were a made-for-TV movie, Dulce would have graduated valedictorian, gone on to college, fallen in love, made friends, and three years from now at her 10-year high school reunion, she'd go back and upstage everyone. But Dulce didn't get to go to college. My plan was to, um, to, um, to work and save money um, so I could pay for, for college myself. Um, I was going to be able to enroll, but the tuitions were going to be three times uh, more than what it used to be. Um, An undocumented student uh, has to pay a, um, if you call it a, remember, a foreign tuition, yes, which is three times more than the regular tuition. Oh, my God, why? That was the only way we could go to college. And so I was thinking, I never asked why, but I just thought it was unfair, but um, I couldn't do anything to change that. So my plan was to work and save money so I could go to college. But then during that same um, summer, um, actually during so, uh, I found that I was pregnant. I was expecting a baby, so that made me think that probably I wasn't going to be able to accomplish all the plans that I had. I didn't have any idea how difficult it was going to be. And being um, pregnant and not having um, any documents to legally work were hard for me to find employment. So I decided to just to spend the rest of uh, the pregnancy uh, indoors. Nevertheless, graduating from high school as valedictorian gave her the opportunity to speak about her status. I gave a speech during the graduation ceremony. Um, That's so, what was your speech about? I heard this term, which is coming out of the shadows. And during the speech, uh, that's what I did. I um, I came out of the shadows. I openly said 
um, told my um, immigration status that uh, I was in. I wasn't undocumented, and because of that, I wasn't able to go to college. What was it like for you to, to like, announce that in front of a whole audience of however many people? I felt empowered um, to say I'm undocumented, but I feel that if that doesn't mean I'm, I'm not capable of doing things, it might just take me extra work, but probably I can achieve um, as much as others can. Well, I mean, and more, to to come from another country and learn the language enough that you can then go on to be valedictorian, like, that's an incredible accomplishment. Yeah, I was happy to at least be able to do that, to be able to accomplish that. Human beings deserve to be seen, heard, and counted. We all can be agents of change. We all can influence the outcome of things. Um, and I think that I, I, what I hope is that people understand that uh, certain things need to change. Certain things need to change, and that they're not going to change magically. Uh, I often say, my, my colleagues always joke with me because I always say, you know, there, there is no Superman coming to save any of us, right? Uh, that we have to take it into our own hands. Being counted is even more relevant during census years. Every 10 years, the United States Census Bureau conducts a national enumeration survey. This year, 2020, is a census year. Here, Juliana Cabrales gives the reason why Naleo Educational Fund stresses the importance of census participation among the Latinx community. The power that participating in the census brings to our community and how it's the one thing in the democracy of this country where we all count as one, regardless of country of origin, age, immigration status. Among the Latinx population, there is a lot of apprehension around census participation. What we found is that by and large, um, those people who we interviewed, uh, who um, thought, surveyed and who went to our focus groups, we found that 77% of them um, understood that the census was important for the community, so the census will benefit their community. That 77%, but 75% thought that they feared that the Trump administration would use data collecting the census against them and their families, right? So you have 77% of people saying, yes, I understand that the census is important because I get better schools and I get better roads and I get medical facilities. But 75% also said, but I fear that the information I share could be used against me and my family. And and that's troubling and that's crippling, right? Um, uh, You know, it's crippling. We've done a lot of work to sort of, you know, raise consciousness about Title 13 protections, right? The fact that the census is confidential, that there's a firewall between census information and all, all the federal agencies. Um, uh, you know, we've done a lot of work in bringing that up, you know, uh, but it, 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 it does pose, uh, it does pose a, um, a challenge, right, to getting a full count. The fact that 75% of people believe that, uh, 75% of Latinos believe that the information could be shared and used against them. 
In the case of Latinx immigrants, not only is there often an emotional barrier to being counted, but the government has also actively attempted to exclude these individuals from enumeration. In July of this year, President Trump signed a presidential memorandum calling for the Census Bureau to keep two sets of books, one to measure the full population and the other to count American citizens separately so that political representation and financial funding could be allocated on the basis of citizenship and not on the basis of population. I should note that doing this would be nearly impossible considering that the Census Bureau isn't asking people their citizenship status. The Supreme Court ruled that doing so would be unconstitutional. But that doesn't mean that this political power play might not further discourage members of the immigrant population from census participation. Here is Catherine Barch, the Associate Director of the Latin American and Latinx Studies Program at the University of Pennsylvania. I noticed I did the census a couple of weeks ago, and it is important to fill out. And I, I noticed how they changed it, which was good in terms of they gave a few more options, right? When you say, do you identify as Latinx? And then they, well, they use the word Latinx. But, and then they, Hispanic, and then they give you like a Mexican-American. And then the next page was race. I did notice the horrible binary gender choices, though. They, you can't only choose male or female for your gender. It's this binary conception of gender that has motivated the introduction of the term Latinx because Spanish is one of many languages that assigns a gender to most nouns. The use of Latinx in addition to or in lieu of Latino or Latina is a way of embracing a more expansive and inclusive understanding of gender. The exclusion of certain genders from the United States Census, along with attempts to discourage or discount Latin American immigration, illuminate the reality that systems of supremacy don't confine themselves to marginalizing only small subsets of a population. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter your background, how much generational wealth you have, the color of your skin. Like People are being brutally attacked by the same system. And I think understanding that a system that harms one person will quickly harm you as well. It doesn't matter if you see a differentiation between you and the majority of people being harmed. It really is, you know, harm towards one person will harm us all. By recognizing that systemic inequities harm all of us, it becomes inevitable that we begin to see our shared humanity. Borders become erased. Walls are taken down. And instead of being caged and confined, individuals are empowered. If we want to actively encourage the empowerment of others, we need to slow down long enough to make connections and to hear their stories. I think maybe just like um, being generous listeners <laughs> to the narratives around us. I think that's because listening is a choice and all action is, is a personal choice, right? To move one direction or another. And so I think at the very least, a generous listener has taken the action to listen, which is huge. Well, I think it's so important that you mention the skill of listening because I think that, you know, like it seems like a lot of times when people have an agenda or they want to get their their voices heard, you know, it can be very easy to to shout but not mm-hmm. to listen and and mm-hmm. I think I think we need both. Absolutely. Absolutely. One of the big influences that I have had in my life 
Uh, well, the two big influences that I have had in my life have been Dr. Martin Luther King on one hand, and uh, with all the concept of the beloved community, and we'll talk a little bit later about that. And the other has to be uh, is Dr. Paulo Freire, uh, edu- the Brazilian educator, no? Latin American educator, Paulo Freire, who will present during the 1960s and 70s, 80s, 90s, what is called dialogical education, which is education to humanize, which is, is the education in which the educator and the student talk and listen to each other and learn from each other. In that sense, education becomes horizontal. Everybody has something to teach. Everybody has something to learn. Nobody can tell the whole truth. Therefore, we need a dialogue. And in order to, to, to have a dialogue, the skill of listening or real listening is perhaps even more necessary than expressing. Because once that we listen, once that we listen, then we can express with sense what we want to say. Therefore, uh, or, or how we can interact with the other. But listening becomes key. And I do believe that today we have perhaps the most uh, uh, advanced media uh, in that in any other time in history, and uh, but perhaps we have the poorest communication in history, in which we are very limited in how we express, but also we are limited in how we listen. Hi, this is Anna Marie. Dara Lisa and I thank you for tuning in to the Demystifying Diversity podcast. We'd love to hear your voices on topics of diversity. So join in on the conversation by calling 844 844- 888-8148 and leave us a message or drop us a note through the website www.demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com and we'll do our best to answer your question during our Q&A episodes. Hopefully, the work being done by various individuals and organizations to ensure greater civic and political participation will amplify more marginalized voices and encourage more attentive listening. I think that Working towards full participation of our community, regardless of where Latinos live, regardless of what it means for an outcome of the election, is the only thing that's going to get us to true um, participation and like the true realization of our community's power. Education is also essential. There aren't many books saying how to educate for participatory democracy. So in my dissertation, I try to say, okay, what is participatory democracy? And I look at scholars in political science that have sort of defined it since the 1960s and continue to think about it and basically a normative argument saying we should think about how we should educate for a participatory democracy, right, when we do these programs. And so I think um, in my class, like in the beginning part of the class, I try to do a lot, but the students who are going to be teaching have to read things like Paulo Freire, uh, Dewey, Ira Short, uh, more, you know, more Paulo Freire, um, and more this idea of how we educate for, you know, to transform societal inequities, right? To really, uh, work together. And we contrast that with some other readings by like this person from Harvard, a professor from Harvard, Fernando Reimers, how we educate global citizens and how can we sort of then educate for global citizens in a transformative way that can liberate society. Although not Latinx herself, 
Catherine Barch's life has been immeasurably enriched by her love of Latin cultures. And actually, my kids are Latinx. Their fathers are from Latin America. So I've always been around. I mean, in terms of my personal life, I speak Spanish with uh, their fathers. And that's a whole other story. But anyway, but they identify as Latinx. I think my love of yeah, speaking Spanish and Latin American culture probably had an impact on, you know, why I fell in love with their fathers. The zero tolerance policy toward immigration, which we saw enacted during 2018, has been repealed. But that doesn't mean families aren't still being detained and separated. With the upsurge in COVID cases, detention centers are a high-risk place for the virus to spread. And the virus has already caused outbreaks and deaths in a number of detention settings. In the face of several federal rulings requiring the release of children from detention facilities, ICE enforcement agents have attempted to use these rulings as justification to release children while keeping their parents in custody. Likewise, construction on the border wall has continued, both by We Build the Wall, a private organization founded by military veteran Brian Colfudge with President Trump's encouragement and with leadership from Chris Kobach and Steve Bannon, and also by the United States government. With all the demonstrated benefits of immigration, both by documented and undocumented individuals and families, it makes no sense that there is such vehement opposition against people who want to cross the border, especially since, and please pardon the intentional irony, it is immigrants with their new ideas, talents, innovation, and collaborative social networks that are making America great. There is so much to be gleaned from a community of people who have left behind what they know, come to a new and unfamiliar place, shown their grit, formed connections, worked hard and given back to the social collective. Those who arrive in the United States wanting to make a better life for themselves and their loved ones face opposition and discrimination even as they are contributing billions of dollars to a system that does not acknowledge their existence. Instead of dismissing immigrants and the communities they comprise, we ought to be following their lead. From the very beginning, it's so important to see the community as a full community, as a full person. And then when we are a community, we can talk about the needs that we have and recognize the needs that we have. But first, we have seen as a full person with full potential, with full talents. That doesn't mean that we don't recognize the necessities. We do. But not before. We recognize first as full human people, no? That is a key element. Yeah? Therefore, we invite the people to collaborate with us, to support our efforts, to be alive, but from the very beginning, to see the community with the full potential and as a full community with talents. I asked Dulce why she agreed to an on the record interview. Um, like I said, get out of my comfort zone and maybe inspire other people or probably help with any um, misconceptions other people might have about us, uh, about immigrants and undocumented people, about how we can be, um, also be part of this our country, how we can be, we can be, um, good members of society. Individuals who come to the United States in search of opportunities for upward social mobility offer a lot by way of example. 
there's tremendous self-selection into who becomes, who's an immigrant. I mean, it's a, it's a difficult process to immigrate to the U S legally or illegally. I mean, it's, you know, you, you know, uh, you have to leave family, you know, there's a long, often a long journey, sometimes thousands of miles. So people have to be really highly motivated to, to, um, immigrate. Um, and, uh, that means, you know, the U.S. benefits from immigrants who come who are highly motivated. And so do the communities that these individuals comprise. Immigrant um, claims actually generate uh, social capital in the sense that people are more cooperative with each other. Uh, they, there might even be slightly higher levels of volunteerism than you would expect given people's economic circumstances. They're, they're willing to do things for each other. Neighbors are more willing to, you know, watch each other's kids and things like that. And, um, and so, but part of that's cultural too, right? If you're bringing a culture with you and that you have a shared culture, um, then, you know, the whole idea of assimilation to help people be successful, it's, um, it's not a zero-sum game. It, to, me, to me, it seems like, you know, there's the potential that you, you want to maintain some of that. Uh, people should because it has real value for them, not just psychic value, but like social value um, in their lives. And so, um, you know, uh, so I think that kind of identity and that kind of shared values are actually really really important. Some of the very beneficial elements that immigration brings are language, culture, and the capacity to simultaneously embrace different social and cultural customs. There's almost no evidence that, at least for kids, that that is a hindrance to economic outcomes. That if anything, kids are quite capable of navigating multiple cultures, if you will, and doing well in school and speaking a different language at home and respecting different cultures. So, I mean, I think that's, you know, there's no evidence that you need to completely assimilate and abandon your culture. I mean, I think that that's, you know, there's a lot of misinformation around that, that if anything, there's a potential that losing some of that culture can sometimes, you know, then lose some of the benefits of it. I learned to read and write in both languages at, you know, six or seven, um, came naturally to me growing up because, you know, the, the younger you are, the, the easier it is. In response to the importance of bilingualism and the value that comes from exposure to multiple languages, I want to share a simple children's book, which I wrote under the pseudonym Maggie Williams, to differentiate it from my hard-hitting journalism, creative nonfiction, and adult literary fiction, which I write under my given name, Dara Lee Lyons. This book is entitled Dos Idiomas, One Me, and it will be read by the voiceover actor, Andrea Carolla. It will be read with no translation, just as it is written. Dos Idiomas, One Me. Con mis amigos americanos no puedo hablar español, but when speaking only in English, I don't feel whole. Mis padres no me entienden, no son de aquí. They don't understand English, not at all, like me. There are times I forget I'm part of two different worlds. En la casa soy una niña, but at school, I'm a girl. When I say, esto es muy divertido, my friends no me entienden. Can we order pizza? Mis padres dicen que no comprenden. If I can have fun translating, then it won't be a chore. 
Me gustan igualmente los dos idiomas. Ninguno es mejor. Enséñame a hablar inglés, mi padre me dijo. Teach me some Spanish, asks my best amigo. Sí, por supuesto. Yes, I'll do it, I say out loud. I teach them muchas palabras, and it makes me feel proud. Hablo con mi familia y mis amigos con la misma capacidad. I can understand my classmates, my mother, and my dad. Es un regalo hablar dos lenguas con la misma fluidez. To know without a doubt whatever each of them says. Es bueno saber dos idiomas. It makes me happy and whole. Ya sea hablando inglés o whether speaking español. ¿Quieres aprender también? Do you want to learn? Habla inglés a veces. Then give español a turn. People have the capacity to integrate multiple cultures simultaneously and to evolve beyond their fixed ideas and limited perceptions. In the later stages of our interview, Yvonne and I spoke about what it's like for her to be a mother and how it was giving birth to her daughter that made her aware of the importance of connecting with her community. I asked her, Yvonne, if there's one lesson you want to impart to your daughter, what would it be? She thought for a moment. Then she said, Es un poquito difícil para explicar para mí. Eh, no, no tengo lección uno, lección dos o lección tres. Eh, siempre he querido dar lo mejor de mí para Sophie. He querido que ella se sienta orgullosa de mí, que sepa que su mamá tenía miedo y que se cagó de miedo y que siguió adelante. Que, que se vale sentir de todo que, que es bonito hacer cosas que, que otros no hacen y que uno puede llegar a hacer miles de cosas cuando te gusta, cuando, cuando quieres, en la manera en que, si me entienden, es si hay miedos, si hay cosas que pasan como como nuestro estado migratorio, los miedos que trae, pero no por eso dejo que Sophie tenga miedo, sino que afronte el miedo. Quizás está mal cuando la empujo y le digo, afrontalo, quizás no soy muy dulce en decirlo, pero que Sophie sepa que su mamá no se deja, que no se deja de... de, de que si no hay una cosa y otra que hacer, que, que el mundo tiene tonos grises, pero también de muchos colores. She wants her daughter to be proud of her mother um, and for Sophie to know that, you know, she did feel fear, but she confronted those fears. Um, she wants her to know that um, it's a beautiful thing to do things that other people don't do. And that, of course, there are fears. There are fears related to legal status. There are other fears, but that you have to confront them. And that sometimes, you know, when she tells Sophie to confront her fear, she's not, maybe not the sweetest in, in, in saying that, but that she wants Sophie to know that, you know, though she felt that fear, you know, she didn't just let, let that fear lay there um and that although there are there's lots of gray in life um there's also many colors if we refuse to erect barriers against one another and to stop caging human potential the ability to see the world as a spectrum of options and opportunities 
becomes available to all of us. Thank you for listening to the Demystifying Diversity podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe. And if you'd like to join in the conversation, visit demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com or call 844-888-8148 and leave us a message. Many thanks to interviewees Dulce Ramirez, Sulafa Grijalva, Leah Margarita Gazo Reisman, Obed Arango, John McDonald, Veronica Fitzgerald, Tulia Folletti, Adeja Jones, Juan Rosa, Juliana Cabrales, Catherine Barch, and Yvonne, and to our episode sponsors, Next Level Trainings, and Lavin and Associates. Each episode of the Demystifying Diversity podcast is written, reported, and produced by me, Dara Lise Lyons, with the invaluable assistance of Anna Marie Jones, reporter, producer, and co-collaborator, Paul Kondo, assistant producer and editor, Raina Epstein, creative assistant, Sunny Taylor, content editor and creative collaborator, Zach James, marketing manager, and Monica Lynn, graphic designer. The music you heard is The Flower by Michael Franti and Spearhead, featuring Victoria Canal. If you'd like to explore these topics outside of the podcast, pick up a copy of Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity, wherever books are sold. Join us next week, and in the meantime, Let's practice empathy and work together to create a more inclusive world.